Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Madness. It's all madness. Am I crazy is one of the most frequent questions typed into Google, apparently. Of the four major anxieties that people experience, the first three being annihilation, a fear of death or being uh, physically overwhelmed, separation anxiety, that means being disconnected from attachment figures, people we love. Neurotic anxiety is the fear of being ostracized uh, due to something inherent to our personality. And then there's dementophobia, which is, uh, I like to refer to as decompensation anxiety. Dementophobia is the fear of losing one's mind, that insanity will cause abnormal behavior, leading to ridicule, loss of autonomy, institutionalization, and so forth. And of course, people who do have Dementophobia, as an ongoing concern, have generally family or personal histories of institutionalization, which can worsen the fears significantly. And so part of tonight's talk is about demythologizing what we conceive of, of going mad. Interesting perspectives on why we even have conceptions of insanity and going mad. What purpose does it serve insanity as a ongoing cultural theme? But let's dive in. When we think about going mad or madness or insanity, we're probably not thinking about, let's say, depressive states of anhedonia, which means we're not motivated to do anything. We're probably not thinking about run-of-the-mill anxiety disorders where people do have ongoing worry or ruminating, spiraling, intrusive thoughts. Generally, we are referring to states of psychosis, by which I mean breaks from reality, hallucinations, disordered thoughts, and paranoid delusions, where someone is actively in some way perceiving things that are not shared by others. So that's kind of what is the cultural meme of going mad, the psychotic break. And the stigma associated with uh, psychosis stems from, in many ways, the treatments for schizophrenia, which for a very long time were pretty hopeless treatments. The early D2 antagonists, that's dopamine uh, antagonists that would downregulate dopamine because dopamine disorder is very much at the heart of psychosis. The early antipsychotics like Thorazine and Haldol were terrible medications. They caused tar dive, which means involuntary neurological movements. So in many ways, the treatment made people look even more insane than schizophrenia often did itself. I remember when I was in college, I played in a punk band and we somehow wound up 
being asked to perform at a mental institution outside of Cleveland. And um, we played right before the patients were given their Thorazine at the time or uh, Haldol or there was some other treatments. So we, they, we had a great time connecting with the patients there, but then when they were put on the medications, they became somnolent with twitches and stuff like that. So of course, the lack of worthwhile treatment for schizophrenia and paranoid delusions created the sense that there was this very real possibility that someone could go mad and never return from that state. Now, modern atypical antipsychotics such as Seroquel, Risperidone, uh, Risperidone, Zyprexa, Latuda, and so on and so forth, they don't have the side effects that uh, antipsychotics from the past had. In fact, the side effects are basically metabolic. You might get stomach aches and digestive disorders, but they won't cause side effects that other people would notice. And the people who are treated live functional lives with the help of therapy and taking the medication. With treatment, schizophrenia is manageable. Sure, you might at the beginning of treatment experience low energy and lack of motivation, but this whole myth that someone is going to lose their mind and not be able to put back the pieces together again is a, a holdover from times before adequate treatments became available for psychosis. Furthermore, it's also worth noting that having disordered thoughts is very common at different stages in life. And believe it or not, one out of every 10 people hear voices, uh, experience auditory hallucinations. So even hearing voices is something that people can function quite normally in the world with. Transient psychotic breaks due to insomnia or due to extreme stressful events is very, very common. So much so that uh, insomnia is considered to be one of the most virulent triggers and is almost invariably immediately addressed by psychiatrists when someone is appearing in a state of great distress. That's one of the first things that will be treated generally by giving someone either a combination of anxiolytics and such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but also uh, hypnotics to help them sleep. There is no definition for insanity. Einstein, for example, never said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Well, one, Einstein never would have said something that stupid. People all the time do the same thing over and over again and expect different results for good reason. For example, you might drive the same car to work, you might eat the same breakfast and have the same lunch, and still you would expect each day to be different from the day before. So doing the same thing through ritual behavior, but expecting different results is in no way indicative of insanity or madness. 
Another old gem is that believing one is going crazy is somehow perhaps a indicator that one is losing one's mind. Far from it. If anything, believing one is going crazy is hardly ever an indicator of psychosis. Generally, when someone presents to a clinic and has a serious mental illness that needs to be treated, such as schizophrenia, they almost invariably don't know it. So if you think there's something wrong with your thoughts, that they're in some way strange, the chances are you might have a much more run-of-the-mill anxiety disorder or OCD, both of which are very, very treatable. There's only been one real serious attempt to define uh, insanity. Alfred Korbsky, I can never pronounce his name, but he made a famous observation that all human beings interpret the world through what he called maps. They're just perceptions or views we have. For example, we might view other people as safe or other people as unsafe. We might view the world as a place where if we work hard, we will get ahead or we might have a much more pessimistic view and so forth. So these are appraisals of the world. And according to Korbsky, uh, Alfred Korbsky, Korbsky, I can never pronounce it. Um, he basically said something along the lines of our maps are not the same as reality, but if they're accurate enough, if they're similar enough to reality so that we're, we're functional in the world, then we're sane, essentially. Korbsky basically indicated that it was impossible to actually accurately grasp reality, that we were limited in the way we viewed reality by language, which uh, already simplified and reduced things, but even more so that we all have cultural biases and all that, which skew our perception of the world. So for him, it really wasn't so much uh, that, we, that sanity was accurately uh, grasping reality. It was simply, can we come up with an appraisal or an interpretation of the world that is uh, useful enough that we can function positively with other people? Now, this brings up another question. How do we determine if someone's interpreta interpretation of reality is sane or insane? And this brings us to kind of where uh, psychology has rested, unfortunately, which is called consensual validation. Consensual validation is that a psychotherapist or psychiatrist, to some degree, when they're presented with a patient, they compare the perceptions and speech acts of the patient with other people uh, and try to make a conclusion whether their view of the world and their ideas in some way fit or are conforming to the views of others. So in other words, sanity to some degree 
unfortunately, has always fallen on the belief that if your thoughts uh, and emotions match up with the thoughts and emotions of other people, then to a certain degree, you are considered to be sane. Now, of course, this whole idea of consensual validation is absolutely meaningless, as the great psychologist uh, Eric Fromm noted, that not just individuals, but entire societies can be insane. So if you have the same views as other people around you, but other people around you are insane, then are you really sane? To give an example, Fromm was a German Jew who was in Germany during when the Nazis rose to power, and he saw everyone around him go mad with the paranoid belief that Jews were somehow running an elite cabal that were uh, the enemy and that they had to be uh, completely eradicated, of course, a process that started with Kristallnacht. So from left Germany, and he noted that the idea that sanity can somehow be uh, evaluated by comparing us with other people, he said, that's, there's nothing further from the truth. The fact is, he said that millions of people can have a mental pathology, and that doesn't make any of them sane. In fact, in this country, the one that I and you are, uh, most of you are in, 61 million people believe the core QAnon tenets, which is that a group of Satan-worshipping Democrats run a child sex ring who are trying to control, take control of the, uh, our political institutions and our media. That's 61 million people. So clearly the idea that having a consensual view of reality does not make us sane if we're matching up with people who essentially believe that um, Satan-worshipping Democrats are trying to uh, take over the country. At least as far as I am concerned, that is insanity. Now, only several hundred years ago, people believed the earth was flat and you could fall off the edge. If you disagreed, you were insane. Uh, up until the 17th century, animals could be brought to court as criminals and assigned a lawyer and judge and uh, could be found guilty. And in fact, there was an important case in France where caterpillars were summoned to court. They didn't show up. So there was a bench warrant put out for their arrest. That's insanity. And yet, at the time, if you disagreed with that, you would be considered insane. Uh, up until, believe it or not, the 1980s, 1985 to be precise, surgeries were regularly performed on babies without anesthetics because most doctors believed that babies couldn't feel pain. Yes, that was 50 years ago, roughly. And it was only because of a woman named Jill Lawson, who started a large campaign that forced doctors to reevaluate their beliefs. And then when they actually did, they found that, yes, babies do feel pain. So 
all throughout this, if you disagreed with these idiotic, insane beliefs, then you were considered to be insane. So clearly, there's already a problem of defining where wellness uh, reaches psychosis, because if we're evaluating in terms of consensual reality or consensual validation, that falls apart pretty quickly. During the 1960s, there was a large movement to reform uh, the psychiatric movement led by a bunch of brilliant, uh, brilliant psychologists who, who grew dismayed with the entire diagnostic model of that was being used to put people in institutions. So this was led by people like R.D. Lang, the split self, Gilles Deleuze, uh, Thomas Sands, uh, Irving Goffman, and uh, a couple of others whose name I don't re recall. And they basically challenged all psychiatric diagnosis, especially those concerning sanity. Uh, basically, they said that there's no medically sound way to actually evaluate a human being's sanity. Generally, they noted that a mental illness is first diagnosed by the patient themselves or by family members or by general practitioners. And by the time a patient reaches a psychiatrist, there's already a general consensus that the patient believes I'm mad. And then the psychiatrist would generally go along with this um, essentially this verdict, they would make some cursory tests, but as Artie Lang noted, there actually is no medical biological test that can show sanity or insanity. This led to countless wrongful institutionalizations. To give you an idea of how off the whole process can be, if you think you have pneumonia or cancer, you go to a doctor and they immediately do tests before they say, yes, you have pneumonia. They look for signs of bacteria or virus building up in your chest cavity, which is easily enough seen with a chest x-ray. So before they make a diagnosis, they actually have sound proof. But when it comes to medic, uh, psychiatric diagnosis, that's not there. Perhaps the greatest single attack on our ideas or conceptions of madness was of course brought to us by the great Michel Foucault. In 1961, he published his landmark book, Madness and Civilization. And Foucault basically stated that human history isn't about progress at all. That human history is the history of power, of how we exert control over other human beings. So in his study, he showed how quickly our views of madness and insanity changed throughout history by studying various discourses. In the 15th century, Foucault noticed that madness was seen as an alien force to be expelled, and people were very often stoned and attacked. But then in the 16th century, madness was seen as a form of wisdom. 
you were actually um, believed, if you were considered mad, to have some insight into the cosmic tragedy of the world. But then by 17th century, the Enlightenment basically stated that rationality was everything. And so the mad were placed in these horrific asylums where they would be given no treatment and they were basically kept with prisoners where they would re, uh, meet early deaths. But then by the late 18th century, there was a new movement that championed liberating the mad from asylums and letting them return to society. But then back in the 19th century, psychiatric clinics emerged and with it the need for diagnosis and also with it a strong societal impulse to institutionalize people, to put them away. So Foucault looked at all this and he said, there's no progress in any of this. It's simply a haphazard, arbitrary movement uh, in terms of how people sought to gain leverage or control over others. The motivation wasn't to help people. The motivation, he said, for diagnosis and institutionalization was just a way to separate, to marginalize, to exclude, to essentially maintain, he said, is essentially to normalize bourgeois practices and morality. We put, for example, people away for so-called lewd sexual behavior because they violate the puritanical uh, ethos of the times. So for Foucault, he saw a essentially all treatments of madness was an attempt to legislate and normalize the morality of the time, which for him was entirely arbitrary. In that way, he's very Nietzschean and so forth. Cut to 50 years, actually 60 years later, and just in 2019, a massive study by four famous psychologists at the University of Liverpool uh, reached the same conclusion, which is that psychiatric diagnoses are vague, inconsistent, and utterly without value in helping individuals who are in distress. And here's the big point they made. Uh, they believe that diagnosis such as schizophrenia, paranoid, schizotypal, schizotypal, bipolar, and so forth, um, wrongly implies that distress stems from disorders. And their conclusion was that almost all psychological distress stems from trauma, pure and simple. If you look at virtually every single presenting patient who shows up at a clinic, this is not someone they believe who's insane, but someone who's having a natural reaction to adverse experiences and life stressors from poverty, isolation, early abuse and abandonment, and adult trauma such as uh, near-death experiences and severe losses and grief. So for them, psychosis is not a disorder. Psychosis is a natural defensive reaction to trauma. How does it work? Well, essentially, our self, 
splits into separate components. One component keeps hold of the trauma memories apart from the rest of us. And when we're in the part that holds the trauma, we present as crazy or out of it. But simply what's happening is a very excluded part of ourself is holding unbearable, painful, emotional memories. Bringing us totally up to date, two recent works by um, Peter Conrad and Joanna Moncrief boast on, on psychiatric diagnosis as a political device. So from their perspective, the medicalization of diagnosis, which means it's done by a very few people who have a medical degree, generally psychiatrists, of course, have a, are doctors who've taken courses in uh, uh, psychopharmacology. Um, uh, basically, the medicalization of diagnosis prevents us from grappling with how widespread trauma and the adverse uh, events that follow trauma are in our culture. Uh, 35 million children, one out of every two children born in this country, will experience adverse childhood events, ACEs, that have negative impact on their developing brain, their immune systems, and lead to spending uh, much of their lives in fight or flight states. And for these half of children born, into traumatic situations, they will have their life expectancy shortened by as much as 20 years. So is there really mental illness or are we a culture of trauma, a culture where trauma isn't treated, where people are essentially abandoned who are suffering the long-term results of extremely painful, stressful, uh, overwhelming events in life. Is the idea of madness a way we can turn a blind eye to those who wind up as homeless, believing, well, they're simply people who have mental illness without actually seeing the, much of the homeless population as people who've experienced trauma and never got the help that could have easily allowed them to live normal functional lives. To maintain this fallacy, our culture bombards us with depictions of insanity. If you turn on Netflix, you'll see documentary and, and TV drama after documentary after documentary about serial killers and uh, so-called uh, profiles of those who've gone mad. And this, again, brings us back to our original topic, dementophobia. Our fear of going mad is actually a very distorted recognition for me of a, of a profound truth, which is that our society has no safety nets. We don't take care of people who have suffered. So our fear, if we have it, of going mad is actually our fear of recognizing that if we experience any adverse event, uh, 
we might very well wind up without any support or care. And we might wind up, therefore, on the fringes of society, dumped out of sight, out of mind, uh, without any real help. So before we go to, on that happy night note, before we go to our practice, I would like to note that madness is in fact covered by the Buddha's original texts. In the Pali Suttas, um, all people are born with a predilection to umada. Umada is the word for uh, madness or lack of sanity. But it's seen as just a general sliding scale that we're all somewhere on the spectrum. One can go mad from an insatiable addiction to sensory pleasures, shopping, eating, gambling, uh, and so forth. One can go mad through anger, delusional views, as well as uh, alcohol intoxication. But there's a special mention here uh, uh, in madness that is rarely found throughout the rest of the Pali Canon, which is the Buddha notes that a primary form of madness is from vayasana, which means trauma, or extreme experiencing extreme misfortunate events. So even here, we see that uh, a questioning of madness in terms of a real disorder or disease or etiology, and rather viewing it as a result of experiencing adverse events. It was considered rare by the Buddha to have what's called jati umataka, which is being born mad without any hope of experiencing wellness. In fact, it was exceedingly rare from their point of view. Rather, all states of umataka or madness were seen to be treatable. And interestingly, sanity, in early Buddhism, the word used for it was sati, which is the same word we, he used for mindfulness. The simple practice of mindfulness, being aware of our internal experience from a calm, non-judgmental, observant awareness that instead of overlaying all of our experience with views and opinions and verdicts and diagnosis, simply being aware of what we were experiencing, watching it arise and pass, was for the Buddha the ticket to sanity. So with that, I'm going to lead us on a very basic run-of-the-mill mindfulness practice. So I thank you for listening to that uh, dialogue on mental illness. I hope there was something worth pondering in there. And now find a really comfortable seated position. And while you do, as always, if you'd like to support me as a Buddhist pastor, everything I do is entirely supported by donations alone. Uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC. So thanks for that. And I'm going to take off my glasses. And I'm just going to find a nice, comfortable seated position. By which I mean 
the two principal concerns are to be upright so that the body has a nice balance. And that requires exerting a minimal amount of effort, just constantly being aware if we are beginning to lean too far forward, if our neck is craning, or if we're uh, leaning too far back. When the body is balanced, the muscles over time can relax, reduce action potential sent to them by uh, motor nerves, and we can truly relax if we're upright. But also be easeful, which means to reduce all of the unnecessary clenching and tightness in the body. So that can mean starting with the top of the head, just being aware of the sensations of the forehead, and just noticing if there's any tightness there or around the eyebrows, the brows, whether we're, those areas are relaxed. Using the mind's ability to influence the body to just repeat the phrase, relax, let go. Imagine your attention could smooth out any tension and then moving down to the micro muscles around the eyes, just softening, releasing any uh, contraction there and just encouraging your eyes to settle. When the eyes are settled, settled behind the eyelids, then the mind tends to settle. And then notice any excess movements around the mouth, or if it feels like the mouth is, the lips are clenched in any way, or if the jaw is clenched, just release that area. Continuing down to the throat. Just breathe into the throat and just see if you can just experience a general release. Also the muscles in the back of the neck, which can, if we're busy, can always be somewhat tight and to the point where the neck can almost feel uh, 
solid, unmovable. And then bringing awareness to the shoulders. If you feel your shoulders are gathered in front of you, just rotate them up and back and drop them away to open up the, the chest. And then just continue down the body, releasing any excess muscle tightness, especially areas in the belly. Just having a soft, pliant belly is such a conduit to being less reactive, less prone to busy, intrusive ideations. Long, long exhalations tend to, breathing out twice as long as you breathe in tends to activate the parasympathetic nervous system allowing us to relax. So just trying to cultivate an easeful state, embodied awareness, soothing, If you'd like being aware of the palms of the hands or the soles of the feet or any other areas of the body that may be influenced by your soothing attention, just release. Trying to spread ease and comfort and Pliancy throughout the body. The first foundation of mindfulness is just observing sensations of the body without any judgment, almost as if you're a visitor from another planet who's landed somehow in a human body and you've never experienced the breath before, never experienced feelings of gas or liquidity or slight pains or 
twitches or tingling sensations, not having any agenda other than to learn how to relax this body and be aware of it.
So the second foundation is mindfulness of feelings. Feelings are essentially boiled down to do you feel comfortable right now or uncomfortable? And how do you know that? So when we're comfortable, we like what we're experiencing. We're totally or very happy to have more of it. There's a general feeling of relaxing. When we're uncomfortable, we don't like what we're experiencing. We want it to change or go away, and we're not relaxed. So when we're mindful of feelings, we're simply looking for sensations in the body that create a state of either being comfortable, relaxed and enjoying the present, or uncomfortable. Generally, these feelings that create comfort or discomfort are found in the front of the body. Tightness or ease in the belly, clenching or relaxing in the throat, openness and warmth in the chest or tightness there. The shoulders can be somewhat lifted and tight or released and dropped. The jaw can be clenched or otherwise. So just continually just asking, how do I feel right now? And paying attention to the evidence. You'll note that feelings change. Sometimes we'll think of something pleasant and the feelings will become comfortable. Sometimes we'll hear an unpleasant sound and we'll begin to contract against it. The shoulders will tighten, the stomach will as well. When we can observe feelings rather than identify with feelings, it's amazing how stable and calm and relaxed and peaceful we can be. Hence the Buddha's association with mindfulness and sanity.
And for the third stage, or for third foundation of mindfulness, which will be the last world practice in this meditation, mindfulness of moods. So moods are not about feelings. Moods are the... Uh, mental state of awareness that colors our experience, like a patina or a shade. And the Buddha broke it down into, there's states where the mind is in a darker mood when the attention is jumpy, unsettled, when our mind feels very contracted and small, like it's just totally stuck in our heads, where it feels very, awareness feels very kind of dark around the edges, very, uh, as it were, uh, constantly moving from one stressful thought or one difficult feeling to another. Or there's, on the contrastingly, there are moods that are brighter, where awareness feels expansive, even larger than inside the head. It seems to fill our environment, where the mind feels bright, and uh, very, it relaxes and settles on any topic without jumping about. It's not a monkey mind where the monkey jumps from one vine to another. It's a settled mind. And so just be aware of your quality of mind itself. You'll note that this too can change Sometimes a physical sensation or a memory can pop up or a, uh, an external sensation, a sound. And the quality of mind can suddenly change from bright, relaxed to suddenly unsettled or vice versa.
So I'm going to ring the bowl now and uh, just take your time as much as you need to return your awareness to a balanced state between cognizance of the world around you, but as well as maintaining a mindfulness of your internal experience. <clears throat> 